Uh, we need to continue in the story of Daniel this morning. We finished up at the end of chapter 5 last week. The end of chapter 5 describes the fall of the Babylonian Empire at the hands of the invading Medes and Persians. I want to just kind of sit on that for a moment because you will recall if you've gone through this study with us that the Babylonians, most often the bad guys in this story, they were the ones who had destroyed Jerusalem. They were the ones who had wiped out the kingdom of Judah. They were the ones who had desecrated the holiest sites of God. They were the ones, the Babylonians, who had deported Daniel and thousands of his countrymen to live as captives in Babylon. And for more than 60 years, they ruled with an iron fist, and now they lay collapsed in defeat. Seems likely to me that this is a moment that Daniel and his countrymen would have looked forward to. Do you agree? This was the moment that they had prayed about because the evil empire of ruin was no more. And so as we dive into chapter 6 here, I want you to put yourself in their place. I want you to ask yourself, what frustrates you about the empires of this world? Are there any ways in which you feel like a captive living in Babylon? And if so, what what change in the world do you pray for? What change do you look forward to? And how would you respond to it if you were to live to see it happen? It's kind of at this precipice where where Daniel and and like-minded people would have been as chapter 5 becomes chapter 6. The the opening verses of chapter 6 tell us that the Persians installed a new ruler in Babylon, a man by the name of Darius the Mede. Just a word or two about Darius the Mede. Secular history makes no mention of Darius the Mede. If you look in your your history books, you're not going to find him. So there's some confusion amongst biblical scholars as to who exactly this is. Uh, One suggestion and one possibility is that Darius the Mede is an alternate name for the emperor of Persia, Cyrus II or Cyrus the Great, who we know very, very well from ancient history. Uh, Rulers in the ancient world sometimes adopted different names in different localities. That might sound weird to you or suspicious, but I can remember, (coughs) excuse me, as a child, learning that President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated by a sniper while riding in a convertible. Now, mind you, I'm not saying I learned about this as it happened. I'm old and my hair is getting grayer, but I'm not that old. No offense to any of you who do remember it. I just want to make sure the line is clearly delineated here because I'm getting a little bit sensitive about these sorts of things. But I can remember learning that President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated by a sniper while riding in a convertible. You can imagine my surprise few years older in grade school when I learned that a second president had also been assassinated by a sniper while riding in a convertible. His name was Jack Kennedy, and you can imagine my amazement when I thought, well, A, how weird that they have such similar names, and B, shouldn't we have figured things out by then? Uh, You guys are already on to me, though. You know that John Kennedy and Jack Kennedy are same person, same person. Modern leaders use different names. We remember them different ways. Historians say, well, maybe Darius the Mede is just an alternate name for Cyrus the Great. Another theory, and this one to me holds a little bit more water, is that Darius the Mede is his own man. And he's just a a local magistrate who would have been placed in Babylon 
by Cyrus the Great temporarily to rule as the king over that region while Cyrus the Great attended to all the many things that he needed to attend to as his regime was changing the entirety of the empire. That seems to make a little bit more sense to me because as you'll see, the book of Daniel does kind of differentiate between the two. It refers to Darius, but it also refers to Cyrus. History lesson is over. Let's talk about this. Here's what happens in the opening verses. This Darius the Mede now takes on the job of organizing the political structure in Babylon. This is regime change that's going on here. And so Darius appoints 120 administrative officials, kind of like congressmen from various districts. And then he chooses three men to supervise those 120 congressmen. And you want to take a wild guess at what, who one of those three men who were supervisors was? Daniel. Yeah, hey, we got a winner over here. It was Daniel. It was Daniel. He chooses Daniel as one of three guys to be the supervisors over the 120 representatives. And before too much longer, Daniel, who I will remind you is now close to 85 years old, Daniel impresses Darius so much that Darius makes plans to name Daniel chief of staff. And the other officials hate the idea. So they start a smear campaign against Daniel. They don't want him to be elected. They don't want him to be elevated. So they start a smear campaign against him. And you thought it was just Chicago. <laughs> but they ran into a problem. The problem was they couldn't dig up any dirt on Daniel. He was a righteous man. They could not find any skeletons in his closet. It's not on the screen, but just very quickly, the words of verse 4 in chapter 6 say they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. That's the Bible. In other words, Daniel had spent an, a lifetime being righteous in ruin. I like that verse that I just read because I think it gives us a very clear target to aim for if we want to live like Daniel lived. Because nowhere in the Bible are we told that Daniel was an eloquent preacher or a revolutionary leader or a charismatic luminary or any of the other traits we might assume are required for us to live righteously in a hostile world. The Bible doesn't say any of those things about Daniel, but here's what it does say about him. And we're told this again and again and again. He was really good at his job. He was really, really good at his job and nobody could deny it. He was of course a political bureaucrat, but he had a high approval rating. He had a high approval rating with the Jews, but he also had a high approval rating with the Babylonians. But he also had a high approval rating with, with the Medes and a high approval rating with the Persians and a high approval rating with the Democrats and the Republicans and the Independents and the Libertarians. They all thought that their communities were better when Daniel had the job. Oh, that Christians in America would have such a testimony. Amen. That the world around us would, would learn to say, hey, I may not believe what they believe, but I sure do think things are better when we let them just do their work. That even those who don't like us would throw up their hands and say, 
too bad we can't find any way to discredit them. That was Daniel's testimony. And that's where his rival colleagues were stuck. And so they devised a sinister plan. And we are going to read together now from Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Regarding the other administrators, the word says this. They concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and the high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except for you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. We got to go back to history for just a moment because I think it's helpful to have a little historical context. When the Persians conquered Babylon, they immediately became the largest empire that the world had ever seen. It's said that at this point in history, 45% of all human beings on planet Earth were subject to the kingdom of Persia. But that wasn't Persia's only claim to fame. Persia was well known for its policies of religious tolerance. In the Persian Empire, for the most part, you could pray to whoever you wanted to pray to. And you could worship whoever you wanted to worship. And so for the millions of conquered people like the Jews in Babylon, the arrival of the Persians meant the kind of religious freedom that their parents and their grandparents had only ever dreamed of. Apparently, though, Darius hadn't got the memo <laughs> because he enacts a law. Actually, if we're going to be precise here, he is duped into enacting a law that ignores all the policies of the Persian Empire. It's a law that had the Persians had a Supreme Court, that court would have said, no, this law is unconstitutional because it went against what everybody knew to be true of the empire. Darius did it anyhow. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here about worldly empires. The lesson is this. Don't place your trust in the policies of worldly empires. Don't place your trust there. Persia was supposed to be a place of religious tolerance, of freedom, where all were welcome to live and let live. By ancient standards, this was the ideal worldly empire but worldly empires and worldly powers well, they have a habit of changing their minds don't they our current president president biden is is taking a great deal of criticism these days for approving a project to drill for oil in alaska despite his very clear campaign promise no new drilling no new drilling oh and we can look at both sides of the aisle here can't we most of us are old enough to remember the first President Bush. Read my lips. There it is. Read my lips. No new taxes. And then the president who at the time had the highest approval rating in history is voted out just a few months later because, well, maybe we'll have a few more taxes. Worldly empires have a habit of changing their minds. They just have a way of changing, don't they? In the elementary school where I attended, we had 
two classes for every grade level. There were two first grade classes, two second grade classes, and so on and so forth. And so every year, actually at about this time, we kids would start to advance scout the teachers of the next grade level. Uh, because it seemed like there was always one nice teacher and one mean teacher, at least from our perspectives. Are the Harvatics familiar with what I'm discussing right now? Yes, okay. You guys, I'm sure, are the nice teachers. Uh, but in my grade school, it was, there was one nice teacher and there was one mean teacher. And so we would begin to kind of cross our fingers, hoping, you know, we ended up in the class of the nice teacher. I remember that as I concluded the second grade, we began to scope out the third grade teachers. And the two third grade teachers who were Mrs. Smith, who was all right, and then there was Mrs. Sanborn, who was one of the favorite teachers in the entire school. And so we all wanted to be in Mrs. Sanborn's class. In those days, of course, there was no internet, there was no email. We showed up a couple days before school to look at class lists and find out which class we were going to be in. And imagine my delight when we showed up for registration and I found out that I was in Mrs. Sanborn's class. And I was a humble little boy, and so I just prayed gently for my, my friends who you know, had the misery of being in. No, I was like, Mrs. Sanborn, woohoo! And you'd go and call all your friends and try and find out. We were so excited to be in Mrs. Sanborn's class. And school got off to a great start that year. I remember how exciting it was for a few weeks. <laughs> And then the principal came and told us that something had occurred. To this day, I don't know what it was, but that Mrs. Sanborn would be leaving the school and that we were going to have a new teacher. Enter Mrs. Milford. From my eight-year-old eyes, Mrs. Milford appeared to be about 150 years old. <laughs> the year was 1983, but Mrs. Milford had clearly learned how to teach in 1883. <laughs> Her expertise was in discipline. I don't think you heard me. Her expertise was in discipline. And so if a student spoke up at the wrong time or if somebody did something wrong, the entire class would miss recess. And while other kids were out playing in the playground, we would be told to take out a paper and pen and write. And we would all have to write, no matter who committed the infraction. Trust me, this was a very, very big problem for me. No matter who committed the infraction, I will not chew gum in class. I will not chew gum in class. We would sometimes have to go to the chalkboard and write it if you've ever seen the opening sequence to The Simpsons. We were Bart Simpson at the chalkboard, writing again and again and again what we would not do. And I spent the rest of that year thinking, oh, Mrs. Smith looks pretty good now, doesn't she? <laughs> You see, worldly empires in Westmore grade school at that age was an empire to me. Worldly empires have a way of changing very quickly. Don't place your trust in the policies of the world empire. The world has a way of changing without notice even. People change and, and sometimes people disappoint us. Worldly systems rise and fall, just like we saw last week in chapter 5. Sometimes it happens more quickly than we ever could have imagined it happens. And so putting our trust in worldly empires, in worldly systems, in worldly power structures, this is a recipe for disappointment. But you know what? God never changes. 
God never changes. His word, his character, his promises, these things are good and true and immutable. They never change. And this, this is where righteous people ought to place their trust. Let's shift our focus to Daniel's response. He, he hears very quickly about the law. What do you imagine he's going to do about it? Protest? We Christians like a good protest, don't we? We like to rally for social issues or circulate petitions or start a social media campaign or organize boycotts. Can you picture Daniel doing any of those things? I'm not saying that protests or political demonstrations or anything like that, I'm not saying those things are wrong or even that they're a bad idea, but it's worth noting, I think, that for all the oppression that Daniel lived under, he never once engaged in an organized political protest, never once. Now granted, the political system that he lived under wasn't the same as the one we live under, and, and thus the flexibility there. I'm not saying these things are always bad, I just think it's worth noting I think it's worth taking our lead from the example that he sets. And here is that example. I'm going to read to you from verse 10. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, what did he do? He went home. And he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house. This, of course, was their plan the entire time. And they found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. For a few lines here, the text goes on to tell us that Darius realizes that he got duped and he doesn't want to lose Daniel. Remember, Daniel's about to be his chief of staff, but he has no legal recourse. So down at verse 16, we're told, so at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and to be thrown into the den of lions. I spoke several weeks ago about how a righteous person is a disruption to the ways of ruin. And I told you the story of a, a tree that I discovered by the riverside a few years ago and how this tree in the floodwaters had become a disruption to the river. It had created a dam and disrupted the flow of water. How do we learn from that tree? I think the answer is in the passage we just read, and it's this, hold to the ordinary rhythms of a righteous life. Hold to the ordinary rhythms of a righteous life. The point I'm trying to make here is that Daniel's life didn't change one little bit when the prayer law was enacted. He just went about doing what he had always gone about doing. His life didn't change in response to the empire's attempt to ruin him because his life didn't have to change in response to the empire's attempt to ruin him. He just had to keep on doing exactly what he had always been doing. It reminds me a little bit, please, I don't want to frighten anyone unnecessarily, but it reminds me a little bit of what life is like when, when the internet goes out. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Like when, when your internet provider just full on crashes and, and there's, no, there's no Wi-Fi and if it's really bad, you can't even access your cellular data. I don't want to scare anybody. Somebody hold Carmen's hand. Um, <laughs> 
you know, and, and, and like, <laughs> you can't get online and, and you can't do work and we'll, we'll, we'll just watch TV. Ugh, streaming services can't do that. You can't, have, have we ever been in a household that just absolutely melts down and freaks out when the internet goes out? And suddenly it's like, what are we going to do in the face of this crisis? Well, I know, we'll just keep doing what we've always been doing. Well, we can't do that because the internet went out. You know who doesn't freak out when the internet goes out? People that read books. You said it right there. Stacy Raymond, give me an amen. People who read books don't freak out when the internet goes down unless their library is all on the cloud on their, you know, no, 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 no. People who read actual <sighs> books don't freak out when the internet goes down because they just keep on doing what they've always been doing. They hold to the ordinary rhythms of their nerdy lives. No, no I'm sorry, that, one, that wasn't in there, that wasn't in there. Most of us have spent our lives with extreme religious freedom. And sure, we complain from time to time about societal pressures or a decision that our government has made that, that we don't like. But in this country, in this day and age, we really, we have to admit, we know nothing about persecution on the levels that others have experienced in, in other times or in other places in this world. But I know that even us, even, even we sometimes think, well, what? What if, what if things got really bad? What would we do then? What if we were being threatened or, or jailed or even murdered for our faith? What, what would we do then? Would we rise up? Would we, would we fight back? Would we inspire the, the silent masses to speak up and finally initiate change? What great heroic action would righteousness require of us in that moment? Well, if Daniel's life is instructive, then great heroic actions aren't what's needed. What will be needed is for us to hold to the ordinary rhythms of a righteous life. But of course, in order to do that, we need to be moving in those rhythms now. So follower of Jesus, pray now so that you can pray when, when crisis comes. And, and, and worship now so that you can worship when crisis comes. Uh, gather in fellowship now so that we can gather in fellowship when crisis comes. Immerse yourself in God's word now so that you can immerse yourself in God's word when crisis comes. Pray in the spirit now so that we can pray in the spirit when crisis comes. We need to make these things the ordinary rhythms of our lives so that we can hold on to them when crisis comes. Well, if you've ever read a story from a picture Bible to your kids or to your grandkids, you know how this one goes. Daniel spends the night in the lion's den and Darius spends a sleepless night pacing on the palace grounds because he's anxious over Daniel's fate. And then we read this down in verse 19. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. 
for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. You can go on and read the rest of the chapter. It gets pretty gruesome. We usually don't put that part in the children's stories. I'll leave that to you. The story is pretty reminiscent, isn't it, of the ordeal that we read about many weeks ago with Daniel's three friends at the fiery furnace. That took place, you might remember, about 50 years before this. So separated by 50 years, we have these two events. And in both cases, the king issues a law that would require giving human authority the honor and allegiance that's due only to our God. Both cases, the heroes of the story are faced with the threat of a gruesome execution, but they don't fight back. They just passively continue living according to the principles of righteousness. And as a result, they are cast into this gruesome instrument of execution where their fate for a time remains unknown. In Daniel's case, it's overnight. In the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was maybe a few moments In both cases, God's protective presence joins them in their places of judgment and ultimately they're released having not suffered the harm that was intended them. Can I ask an uncomfortable set of questions? How do we feel about the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go into the furnace in order to find God's saving presence? And then 50 years later, Daniel had to go into the den of lions in order to find God's saving presence. So often we pray that God will keep us away from the crisis in front of us, despite the Bible's very, very clear teaching that the path of righteousness often takes us directly into crisis. Jesus told his followers in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say you might have trouble or you could have trouble. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so I think we do well to learn to seek God's presence in crisis rather than shelter from crisis. To walk into the crisis, as Kat so ably led us in prayer this morning and discover that that's precisely where we find the presence of God. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. How about even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the flames surround me, I will not fear death, for it's right there that you are with me. How about even when I'm thrown into the lion's den, I won't be afraid because I know that you'll meet me there. How would our perspective change if we discovered that the situation that we were running from was the very place that God wanted to meet us and manifest his presence and his power in a way that we had never seen before? I wonder if we really, truly believed that, would we be more willing to live righteously and face what lions may come? In a moment, we're going to receive the communion emblems together.
but I'm going to ask Jenna to return to the stage. She has a song that she's going to sing for us. And as she sings, I would invite each one to just focus on those questions. What's the lion's den in front of us? And how and where might we find the protective, the awesome presence of God in the midst of our crisis?